Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 78. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PetchupPanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooliman. Hi, everybody. That's a very cheery hi, everybody, uh, considering most of the Leafs fan base, as best I can tell, is currently setting themselves on fire. <laughs> I'm working on this as a new personal growth initiative where I just try to maintain my equanimity and sunny disposition, even when things look a little sad. And losing to the Habs always makes us feel sad. Yes, um, and I mean, losing to the Habs in in the way that the Leafs lost to the Habs is, is particularly uh, galling, shall we say. Yeah. So we should quickly, um, we have a lot to cover this week, so we should just get into it. Um, mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll quickly cover kind of the week that was and then talk a bit more in depth about last night's game. Mm-hmm. All right, so this week the Leafs played essentially two sets of back-to-backs. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I think Monday, Tuesday against Columbus and Boston, and right. then Friday, Saturday against uh, San Jose and uh, Montreal. And the latter half of those back to backs were frankly kind of appalling. They did not go well. No, they did not. Um, so, and in both cases, you know, it's losses to divisional rivals. There's there's so, so much to get into here that <laughs> about like you know the fan reaction to each of those losses and the decisions that Mike Babcock makes like for his goalies and everything but we'll, we'll I'll try and push that off to later um, and we'll just talk about the hockey at least to start mm-hmm. um, in each of those games the second halves the tail legs of the back to back the Leafs really just got mollywopped right um, against Boston it was a gross performance that you had um, the misfortune of recapping. So can you, I guess, just talk briefly about what you saw in that game? Uh, yeah, it was horrible. And I resent that I had to do it. I'm angry at the powers that be that required me to recap that game. Although, looking back, I signed up for it myself. So it's kind of the author of my own misfortune there. How dare uh, they make you do that thing you did? <laughs> <laughs> Those bastards are out to get me. Uh, yeah, so... It was a hideous game. The big defining takeaway was the Patrice Bergeron line got up against a version of the Matthews line, Matthews and Marner, and they destroyed them. It was like watching a boa constrictor choke the life out of a rat. It was horrible. And that was actually the defining memory for me was simply that we could not do anything to stop Patrice Bergeron, David Pasternak, and Brad Marchand from doing basically whatever they wanted in our own zone for 90 seconds to two minutes at a time, cycling it around like a carousel. The rest of the team actually had their moments. Kasperi Kapanen had maybe his best game of the season. Uh, Alexander Kerfoot had a really unfortunate giveaway late that takes away from the fact that the rest of the night he was terrific. And so you can certainly find some bright spots there, and you can say, gee, we really miss John Tavares, which we obviously do, but I think we miss him especially against Boston. Because we've talked a lot on this podcast about our strategies for facing the Boston Bruins at various points in time. You know, our theory that we were going to beat them up on center depth and all that sort of thing. The strategy that came the closest to working was we play John Tavares heads up against the Bergeron line. And he can saw off on his good days. Can do a little better on his best days. And that's basically what we got. Austin Matthews can't do it yet. And... That was kind of what was drilled into me from that Boston game. Now, that said, as we already mentioned, it was the second game of a back-to-back. 
They traveled in between. They were tired. And they were, all, again, playing Matthews and Marner together against the Bergeron line, which is neither a teammate combo nor a competition situation that is probably conducive to getting the best results for Matthews. So that's yeah. my summary of that game. Yeah, and then, I mean, I, I, I can kind of summarize uh, last night's game, which is that the Leafs had maybe the worst period of hockey that I've ever watched, and I'm including the Carlisle Leafs. <laughs> it was, Harsh but fair. It was awful. It was really bad. I'm not sure we generated a single opportunity that I would call a chance. Mm. Right? It was horrifyingly bad. And... Again, you know, we were on the second night of a back-to-back. There was travel involved. That's a valid, you know, explanation for not performing as well as usual, but it surely does not fully explain how the Leafs looked like a peewee team at the start of that game, right? Mm. Like, people have done analysis on back-to-backs and, like, a lack of rest. I think Micah McCurdy has done it, and the broad-level conclusion is that it matters about as much as home ice advantage, which is to say... It is a small but notable effect. Now, maybe it's more if it's a back-to-back where you have to travel. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Leafs should not be turning into the 2013 Sabres because of a travel back-to-back, right? And I, I've been someone who said, like, you know, I didn't freak out about Boston, in part because, like, look, they're a very good team, Boston is. Mm-hmm. We're facing them without our best player, in my opinion. And on the second half of back-to-back, I didn't have high expectations for that game. And I didn't have tremendously high expectations for um, the Boston game, too. Right? I, I, We are likely to lose both those games, and that's exactly what happened. However, the performances in them were really, really um, disappointing. Mm-hmm. Right? The, there's, no, there's no real way around that. Now, to the Leafs' credit, last night, after the first period, where they... You know, were fortunate to escape being down 2-1. Uh, they had kind of a late kind of smash and grab through Jake Muzzin um, in, in, towards the end of the first. After that, the Leafs, I, I was kind of proud of what they did. They, they did legitimately fight back in the second, um, and they tied the game in the second. They played, I thought, relatively well in the second. Mm-hmm. And then the third starts, you're like, okay, hopefully we can build on this. And seven seconds in, um, the Habs somehow get a breakaway when they have a power play. And... <laughs> makes it 3-2, right? And again, I think the Leafs played okay um, for most of the third until um, or uh, until another breakaway happened and Drew M made it 4-2. And then at that point, the game is effectively over. The Leafs started to press further. But, mm-hmm. you know, if you're down by two goals in the third, you're never in a good spot, really. So it, last night, I... I, I I'd like to be a bit more optimistic about it. The optimistic take on it is that after a garbage first period, the Leafs played better, you know, decently well uh, throughout the rest of the game. Mm-hmm. But you can't just throw away that first period. You can't you can't burn one third of a game and say, okay, well, forget that. They were fine in the other parts of it, right? Well, if you take away every team's worst moments, they'll look better, mm-hmm. right? That first period is part of the Leafs, and they have to own that. So it was, it was absolutely. Um, a really kind of awful performance. And the thing is, that this these two awful performances were bookended by a very strong performance against San Jose. Yeah, the San Jose game was arguably their best of the year. And again, um, we have to give the caveat that the Sharks were in the position the Leafs were in the following night. They, they played in Montreal on Thursday. 
Mm-hmm. And it, it is, you know, it feels like we talk about rest a disproportionate amount this year, probably because the Leafs are getting clobbered on the second half of back-to-backs for various reasons. But it does make a difference. On the other hand, you know, it was a top-to-bottom really strong performance uh, against San Jose, I thought. Um, it was a little worrisome, maybe, because it looked for a while like the Leafs were going to really struggle to break through and put the puck in the net. But when they did, uh, they came in bunches and it was fine. So, you know, uh, it's not like the team has forgotten how to play hockey entirely. The team has underperformed, I think it's fair to say. They're, they miss their best player, again, John Tavares. Uh, they miss Zachary Hyman, who is secretly who I think their best player is. And they miss Travis Dermott. And so there are those as kind of mitigating factors. But, y- you know, y- you do have to show up. You do have to do better. There have been signs in these games that I didn't think were super encouraging. Uh, you know, getting absolutely jumped in the first period last night. Um, I'm not sure how much to take away from the Matthews Bergeron thing, mostly because it didn't surprise me too much. And because Bergeron will do that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, better players than Austin Matthews have had their souls eaten by Patrice Bergeron and his line. Yeah, I, I mean, that line is going to be remembered grudgingly in our town, but it, it's one of the most dominant lines I've ever seen in my entire life. There's, I, there's two lines that I can remember, you know, as a Leafs fan, and that's why I'm biased towards teams we faced a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, two, there's two other lines I can remember being as much of just a total pain in the ass, which is you're just holding your breath whenever they're on the ice. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first is the Sens line of Alfredson, Spezza, Heatley, that they destroyed us. And it helped that the Leafs were a bad team while that line was in its heyday. That line was actually ridiculously good. And then um, when, whenever Detroit went, Datsuk, Zetterberg, literally anyone. <laughs> Datsuk, Zetterberg, warm body. Doesn't I think matter. Abdulkader played a lot of those minutes. Uh, and or and Johan Franzen probably as well in, in that time. Franzen but, sounds right to me, but I'd have to check. Yeah, I mean that that line was horrifying to play against. And, and again, the Leafs were bad during the stretch, anyways. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it compounds it. But yeah, the the, the Marchand Bergeron Pasternak line, it's on that level. Yeah, you they just can't you can't do anything, right? You're just terrified whenever they're on the ice because, I mean it. You know, we faced actually another very good line last night in Tatar, Deneau, and Gallagher, right? Mm. If you look at the numbers, they're a very strong line, too, by, like, Corsi by expected goals. But that Bergeron line feels like if you took that Tatar line and then made them all elite shooters. Yeah, there's nothing you can do. And with the Boston line, they're so good at cycling. You have a lot of time to contemplate your impending death. You know, like, it just goes around and around, and you're like, at some point, they're going to work it into the slot to Pasternak or something, or they'll do that behind the goal line to the high slot pass that they love so much. And we're going to look like we don't know what fucking postal code we're in and just get absolutely spun around and the puck's in the back of the net. And while that fear is not always played out, it is validated way more often than I wish it were. So Yeah, it's... Yeah. It's a scary good line, right? And it, oh. I mean, Pasternak in particular, I I hate how much I like him because yeah. he, he's a ridiculously fun player to watch. And if he wasn't a Bruin, he might, he'd be my favorite non-Leaf in the league. Oh, yeah. He seems like a really nice kid, too. Yeah. Like I mean, and, sense of humor. That's yeah, it helps that he's friends with Willie, mm-hmm. right? Um, 
He has a good fashion sense, unlike Willie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I- I've commented on this before, but it- between the two of them, it's unfair that David Pasternak got the ability to dress and the ability to shoot. <laughs> it's a tragedy. Always yeah. the bridesmaid, never the bride. Exactly. Um, um, but anyways, yeah. Um, yeah, those were kind of the, the games last night. And just the the game last night in particular... I'm like struggling for words because I can't, it's hard to describe a game where you give up five goals and then four of them are on breakaways or two on ones. Yeah, that was, if you want to make an argument that the Leafs defense is an absolute tire fire, that was it. Yeah, that was the game tape. Um, (laughs) Just, I mean, some of them, to some extent, it's bad luck when you give up that many on man rushes, because in a lot of cases, you know, You'll you'll make a similar play, but for whatever reason, the puck will bounce in a nice way, or you know the opposing player will mess up, and they won't get like the the full chance out of it. But Montreal mm-hmm. was incredibly opportunistic about those, right? So one of them, I think, the second Drew Angle, um, Ilya Mikhailov was at the top of the blue line, and Barry had started to move below him, I guess, to provide him an option, and Mikhailov tried to back or try to pass to Barry that did not work, mm-hmm. and then Drew went the other way and scored. Um, the 3-2 goal was immediately off a face-off, and a one-face-off, no less, where Gauthier won the face-off, but he won it to the area where no one was. Mm. And then Muzzin kind of just got beat to that area by, I believe, Joel uh, Armia. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, it just wasn't, wasn't pleasant. Um, I think the, the one bright spot has been the bright spot that's been there the entire season, and that's the play of... Matthews, Janssen, and Nylander when they're together. Mm-hmm. They're... They really are a fantastic line. Now, they're getting super offensive usage, but, I mean, that seems like a worthwhile endeavor to me. Yeah, and, I mean, I also... <laughs> we were discussing this last night, uh, offline, and um, if you look at their zone starts, uh, this is not including yesterday's game, where they had very skewed zone starts, by the way, but if you, if you do look at their, their zone starts and their shift starts, it's actually quite similar to the Patrice Bergeron line. Yeah, the Patrice Bergeron line is used maybe more offensively than people would realize because, you know, as much as they do have great defensive players on there, and they do, um, their greatest strength is their ability to hold you in the offensive zone. So it, it makes a lot of sense to me to use them in that manner where you put them out in the O zone and just, you know, terrify some poor unsuspecting line that you've jumped on and never let them get out, you know? Um, I thought Marner looked pretty good last night as well, actually. Um, mm. he, you know, the, the, the limitations of the line mates he's playing with has, is starting to show kind of in a more obvious way where it's like, okay, yeah, I mean, turns out we, we missed John Tavares, right? <laughs> Kelsey Surprise. Freeze. Yeah. Um, yeah. but Marner, Marner was good. Kerfoot and Mikheyev, I think are like, you can tell they're like elite third third liners playing dress up right now, mm-hmm. right? And that's not their fault, right? the The Leafs are a team built around four forward stars, and damn right I'm calling Nylander a star. Yeah, fuck the um, But we need all four of them, and I, of the four, Tavares is the most indispensable. Yeah, I would agree. As good as Austin Matthews has been at you know putting the puck in the net, uh, Tavares does everything at at least a good level and on a team with a lot of maybe uneven performers or performers with 
pronounced strengths and weaknesses in some ways, I suppose. It's really good having kind of a Mr. Everything like Tavares, who you can play pretty much wherever you need it. I'm sure that uh, Mike Babcock very strongly appreciates him as a coach. You know, you have like a decent answer to most questions, which is, well, maybe I can use the Tavares line for that. Even granted, he was not having the greatest start to the year, but he is really critical to our team working the way it was. And, you know, part of the justification for the kerfoot Barry cadre trade was, hey, we have Tavares and Matthews now. And so losing them is pretty painful. Right. Like Last year, one of the benefits of Kadri was, you know, when Matthews went down, we had a guy who was, you know, a second-line center easily. Mm-hmm. Right? So, you know, you don't lose out on a whole lot. And then your third and fourth-line centers are, are obviously not as good. But, you know, you take that trade. Um, this year, we don't have the luxury. And we see that as people who are very, very high in Kerfoot. Yeah, uh, he's not as good as Kadri. He's very good. I'm very happy to have him. I like his contract. He might even get a little bit better. But, you know, Nazem Kadri is a good second-line center, and Kerfoot is a really high-end third-line center. I think that difference is thrown into sharper relief, certainly, when they get moved up the lineup. Yeah, and um, something something Katya pointed out, she's been pointing out over the past few games, is that, especially with Tavares out, like, the Leafs are playing their players like a team that where the coach doesn't have much trust in, in the, the depth, mm-hmm. right? Uh, to, towards towards the end uh, of, of the game, basically, we're chasing the game, obviously. So we're rolling Matthews, Kerfoot, Spezza for, like, 20 seconds. And then mm-hmm. Matthews, Kerfoot, and then Spezza for 20. Like, they're, you know, it doesn't seem like that's sustainable long-term. You have too many players playing too few minutes. Um, and that's true of the defense, too, where the third pair right now is not being trusted to do a whole lot. They're playing essentially fourth-line forward minutes, like 10, 11 minutes a night. Yeah, and they, you know, this is a, a larger question. They seem to be doing okay in those minutes, particularly Justin Hall. But at the same time, it's like Mike Babcock is quite fond of building a feather bed for certain players. Just if he doesn't really trust you. He will use you in a very narrow manner, and I certainly think that that's what's happening. But then the weight is falling on those top four players, and that has been problematic in some ways. So. Yeah, absolutely, and it's obviously especially challenging when you're you're missing someone like Tavares who can soak up those, those huge minutes, right? So last night we had really extreme usage with uh, Gauthier basically taking, and his line, obviously, not just Gauthier, taking literally every single defensive zone face-off. And I mean literally in the literal sense. He took all of them. The rest of the Leafs took zero. The rest of the Leafs forwards took zero defensive zone face-offs. And the Gauthier line, if you look at their numbers, they got absolutely mollywopped. Yeah. And I think you and I have both kind of struggled with how do we actually judge that line? Because they are in such extreme usage at this point where they're playing, you know, higher end competition than most fourth lines, right? So they're playing... The QOC that that line is facing vastly outstrips their quality of teammates, and they're getting bad zone starts, right? Their job is very clearly, don't die, yeah, right? Their job the is... the whole game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and to a large extent, it, it's allows, it allows you to play Austin Matthews in the offensive zone where he is, you know, one of the best players in the world, as opposed to in the defensive zone where he is kind of eh. 
Yeah. So I, I understand the the rationale for it. It's it's hard to kind of judge the success of it because it's such extreme usage, and naturally the shot results of the fourth line are going to be really really bad. You're kind of you're 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 accepting that you're going to make a loss on this fourth line. You're hoping that they can mitigate it, and then that you can um, win on the return, like the return exchange, I guess, when when you have offensive zone shifts. And given that the Matthews line and the Marner line actually had decent um, chance numbers and expected goals numbers, more sorry, more the Matthews line. The Marner line had good shot numbers, but they were kind of undone by some errors that led to those breakaways. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it's a strategy that sort of makes sense to me. And it, it becomes more viable when you have Tavares back, too, because then you have another line that you can kind of at least trust a bit for, for some of those defensive zone draws. You can ease the load on Gauthier to some degree. And you also have two lines that, if you want, you start in the offensive zone. So no matter which line is rested, you kind of have an option that can produce high-level offense when you do get those uh, zone starts that you can shelter for. Right. So, yeah, it's it's been, it's been weird, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, we're in an odd spot the results on the aggregate for the Leafs clearly have not been what we would describe as good enough right 14 points in 13 games is no one's idea of a good time um that said the Leafs were at 16 points in 13 games last year the one win difference right the yeah. small differences at this point of the season um can appear quite large yeah and I think you know wins and losses in the obvious sense, one, people look at the record and they think, oh my god, we're not doing that well, and that sort of troubles them in the larger sense, and they think, will we even make the playoffs, that sort of thing. But also, you know, you don't feel good coming out of a loss or a win, and as much as, you know, we try to be process-focused or we can distinguish good losses and bad wins and all that sort of stuff, losing to Boston and Montreal is always going to upset this fan base a lot. With some reason, you know... It sucks, and they're divisional rivals, and they're getting points, and we're not. It's it's not good, but I do think that that is a factor in the fact that the whole fan base is, if you judge by online, which is probably stupid, melting down, to quote James Myrtle. Like, it's pretty, it's pretty intense right now out there, so I guess this comes around to the question that everyone seems to be dwelling on right now which is is it time to fire mike babcock and i guess it's worth laying out maybe why people think that right so this is not personally what i believe but let's say i've been retained as counsel for the prosecution in the case to to fire mike babcock this is the sort of thing i would say which is that ultimately coaching like generalship in war is a results business You have to win in the end. And while it may be unfair that you lose in certain circumstances, you may have great excuses for not winning. Sooner or later, you have to win because that is what we are here for and that is why you are being paid a very large amount of money. Now, we might say, hey, we're trying to be process-focused here. We know that results are random, especially in samples as small as 14 games. There are injuries clouding the factors. There are rest differentials that maybe make this team look a little worse than they uh, otherwise would. But at the same time, when winning is the major objective, you have to keep that in the back of your mind that you need to win games. And if not this season, in general, you need to win a playoff series. And while we try to follow process here in terms of shots, expected goals, that sort of stuff, 
our sanity check on all that stuff is still ultimately is the team winning because we know that our descriptions of process and what leads to teams doing well are kind of imperfect. There are teams that dominate in shots and seem to underperform them mysteriously year in, year out. Uh, Carolina did that for about eight years. And so there's a lot going on there in terms of is Mike Babcock living up to expectations? The team is not, so some by some definition he is not. And at what point do you say, okay, I'm not content with this team not appearing to progress anymore, not appearing to get any closer to its goal, not having won a, a playoff round. And if the team is losing games, enough games that you start seriously questioning where exactly they're going to finish at the end of the season, and whether it's even in a playoff spot, then maybe there comes to be some urgency there if you really think that a change is going to help. There are things that I think you can legitimately object to Mike Babcock about, and yep. maybe one of the biggest ones is his over-reliance on certain defensive defensemen. Ron Hainsey, Nikita Zaitsev, Cody Ceci, increasingly. And you might say, hey, he didn't have a ton of options there, and that's true. But through the latter half of last season, for example, when the Leafs were basically treading water as they sort of drifted towards a matchup with Boston in the first round, we never found out whether Travis Dermott could do any of that. We never really got a chance to evaluate um, what other alternatives we had. We kind of went back to Old Faithful in terms of Ron Hansey. And now we're seeing Cody Ceci, who is still putting up okay shot results. Less okay now, I Yeah, think. they've started to, to crater, as we might expect, a little bit. But he is narrowly positive at time of writing. His partner is not. Yeah, I can, I can put up the numbers on him and Riley as a pairing. Just keep going all, all Yeah. Uh, I think if you privilege the eye test at all, you would say that pairing has looked like it's struggling to distinguish its heads from its ass a lot of the time, frankly. Um, again, maybe he doesn't have a ton of options. His next best right defenseman is Tyson Berry, who's been sort of stuck with Joel Muzzin on... Sorry, Jake Muzzin on a productive pairing. And then it's Justin Hall, who is kind of a tweener. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, just to, to interject here. Uh, Riley and CC together have like a 49% Corsi, slightly above water in goals, and a, you know similar in expected goals, so slightly below 50% in goals. CC without Riley has been quite positive. Um, I'm curious if there's like offensive zone starts to explain that. I'm looking at that now. It doesn't appear that way. I don't. It's a you know it's a small sample of him without Riley. Um, it's 45 mm-hmm. minutes over 13 games, so you know that's a couple minutes a game. Yeah, I don't know if that's some sort of fluke of the residual time after a penalty kill or something, although that often works to the disadvantage of the player. Yeah, or, or, you know, I mean, the Leafs do have shifts where, you know, they'll split up the defense score, especially for, like, offensive zone and defensive zone draws. Maybe Mm -hmm. there's something there. We'd have to look into it more. Um, You mentioned Hall. Uh, Hall is at least, maybe he's plausible to move up. I mean, he's certainly... The Leafs' fifth defenseman this year has always been trusted more than their sixth defenseman, right? So yeah. when, when I mentioned, you know, a few minutes ago that we're playing kind of some defensemen like their fourth-line forwards, really that's the sixth defenseman. Like, um, right. Marinson and Gravel have been around 10 minutes a game consistently. Sandin and Hall have been closer to, you know, 13, 14, 15-ish, which is mm-hmm. more manageable. That That's kind of like a, a regular third-pairing defenseman, but... He's getting those third-pairing defenseman minutes because he also takes some shifts with, like, Riley on offensive zone draws and stuff like that. So, on the whole, that third pair is not getting a ton of time, obviously, 
you can see like the the lowest this the lowest end minute performer on that of that line is obviously kind of the maximum time that that pairing could have together so yeah it, th there really are not that many options but as you said like the the lack of experimentation with Dermot has put us in a situation where we don't really know what we have in Dermot besides okay he can beat up on third pairing usage yeah and that's a problem because one next summer we have all of our defensemen coming up unrestricted or restricted free agents except Morgan Riley and two this team is putting up a first pairing that still is not achieving much it feels like or at least they're kind of struggling to do much other than put up points and you and I both kind of agree you can get a certain number of points playing as a defenseman on the Toronto Maple Leafs with high scoring forward lines just by being alive like you just have to be in the vicinity and a certain number of points will accrue to you this happened to uh, Ron Hainsey last year like the list of like prestige defensemen who he actually had more even strength forwards then is kind of funny. It's got, you know, Colton Pareko on it and Oliver ekman Larson and a bunch of other guys. And, and so you do think, okay, if that's not working, is that purely a failing of personnel? Or do we just not know that we have any other options? Now, you might say, look, do you really think Justin Hall is going to be able to play on a top pair? No. Do I really think Cody Cece is able to play on a top pair? Not really. And so I think... Of all the objections that you might have to Mike Babcock, that is the one that seems the strongest to me, is that we have gone back to things that are mediocre at best, and we have said, well, it's okay, he doesn't have better alternatives, but we've never seriously tried them, and we're going into year four where that seems to be happening. Now, Muss and Barry, is, it, they seem to me as if they're drifting in the direction of becoming almost a first pairing. They play more at even strength yeah. than Riley and CeCe do. Um, not by a huge amount, but enough that it's there's some separation there. And maybe that's part of the answer. Jake Muzzin has probably won over a lot of Toronto Maple Leafs fans by being our defenseman who can play defense, which is kind of in short supply. Um, so maybe that's part of the answer there, but it, it does feel like we haven't, been able to find a way out of the problem with defense. And again, if you want to make the case against Mike Babcock, you can say on and on that there are lots of reasons and limitations with personnel and you can't do better. But sooner or later, you have to do something with what you've got because you have to win. And that's the standard. And if you can't do it, we will try someone else. And even if you think that the next person may not do a whole lot better, the next person is a maybe. And if you've shown yourself to be a no that's going to hurt your job security. So I'm not at that point yet, and I do think that the case about Mike Babcock has gotten kind of crazy. Like, it's been taken as a given that he's a bad coach, and so all sorts of mistakes or failings with the team are attributed to him. There's been a lot of stuff about when he plays starter and backup. Yeah. And no one ever bothers to prove the premises in that argument. I'm not even saying it's necessarily wrong. Everyone just takes it as a given that he's being an idiot. And I find that kind of annoying. But, you know, there are things that have not progressed the way we would hope in this team. I don't think Mike Babcock is probably going to get fired anytime this season. 
unless things absolutely crater and like I mean worse than they already have by a lot so we'll see yeah I know I think that's a fairly um, good kind of argument for or I guess restatement of the case the actual case for firing Babcock the other thing I think you could point to is that the Leafs defensive results have been consistently bad for I guess three years basically ever since we've had this iteration of the team and the tricky part the tricky part with any coaching evaluation is how do you separate what the coach does and what the players do mm-hmm. right it's very very difficult um because you know it's not like this isn't like a randomized experiment we can say okay Babcock, go coach Detroit for a little bit let's get Cassidy in here and let's see how this works right <laughs> we I wish we could do that and we could like kind of yeah, let's Actually, write double blind studies. And yeah, it would, it would help yeah. our understanding of hockey a lot. But unfortunately, um, they're more concerned with playing games than the, the needs or what I want to analyze. <laughs> How rude of them. I know, right? Uh, so, yeah, like it, it, it is challenging to, to do that. It's, it's hard to say, you know, what was Babcock? Or at least bad defensively because Babcock can't teach them anything? Or are they bad defensively because they have a lot of bad defensive players, right? And... Again, this is something Alan has brought up whenever we've had him on. So the Leafs have continually leaned into this all-offense mentality. Right? Yeah, I, I mean, acquiring Tyson Berry does not make you better at defense, mm-hmm. I have to say. And uh, boy, did that get established recently. <laughs> yeah, he, Berry did not have a very good game against uh, Montreal. I, I think some people are starting to get a little frustrated with Barry because like mm. the individual offense hasn't been there for him I- I'm not really as concerned with that uh, he's been part of a good pairing with with Muzzin mm-hmm. I do think Muzzin is the better defender of the two and yeah. I do think Muzzin is going to cost less than Barry so Muzzin is the guy I want to keep and Barry is like a, a nice rental effectively in my opinion yeah the way things are going it's uh uh, well, I'm sure we'll have plenty of opportunity to discuss this down the line, but Jake Muzzin getting an extension for him feels like something that we may have to do, even though he's going to turn 31 in February, which is an age that we've usually avoided in the Kyle Dupas era, so to speak, for term contracts. Like, we have a young team for the most part. So that's that's something to keep an eye on. It, but, it, it uh, de- definitely yeah. seems like Jake Muzzin's next deal is going to kind of suck on the back end. But mm-hmm. it might be one of those deals that you have to make if you're the Leafs. Yeah, and if you give that term and kind of accept it as almost the only way that you keep the AAV, AAV reasonable in the first part of the deal, maybe you make that transition. You know, you say we're a good team now. We have to pay to get some good players now. He's as good a defenseman as we're going to find, assuming we can't sign Alex Petrangelo, which I doubt. So, yeah. Yeah, and Petrangelo's going to command $9 million or so, right? Like, He's going to be, yeah. And the back half of that deal may not be too great either. No, so, no, definitely not. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we should also, I guess we, we kind of outlined what we think is a cogent argument against Babcock. Mm-hmm. We should also outline all of the arguments that we've heard that are kind of ass. Yeah, well, okay, so real quickly. One, there was, there are these sort of, individual discrete game-to-game decisions that get second-guessed. I think Maple Leafs Hot Stove a couple weeks ago did a very good job of explaining why Austin Matthews was not out during a six-on-five. I think that was against Washington. It was, yeah. And so, it was Alec uh, Brownscombe, wasn't it? Yes, it was. 
it was. Yeah, and he wrote, and he basically just laid it out frame by frame and said there was no opportunity for him to put Matthews on because he was legitimately resting him, and then the unit just stayed out, and he had him on the boards waiting. Uh, so there's a ton of stuff like that. The idea that Mike Babcock is coaching this team to ruin their offense is... Uh, crazy is probably too kind a of word. Like, it's very, very strange to me. Because if he's coaching them to dial back their offense and stifle their creativity or something, he has failed miserably in his supposed objective because he's turned out a team year after year that dominates in offensive metrics and is abysmal defensively. So, I mean, I guess if you have a sufficiently low opinion of Mike Babcock, you can say that he has accidentally made the most fire wagon hockey team imaginable despite his clear desire to not do that i think a lot more reasonable is that he accepts that he has an offensive minded team he's just trying to get their defense up to passable and he knows that that's what they need to work on so he has some focus on that but i have less time for that argument than almost any of the other ones that i've mentioned i think that's crazy well the other thing is that argument is completely at odds with all the bleeding about stretch passes we had last year yeah, which is a high octave, it's a high risk offensive maneuver by definition. You know, like that's what it's for. Yeah, the the uh, upside of a stretch pass is that you can get an odd man rush, right? Or you yeah. can get a rush chance with speed and like you can't both complain that Babcock was too reliant on stretch passes last year and Babcock was uh not coaching offense or not trying to get offense in any meaningful way. And Look, I hate to be kind of a gatekeeper about this, but when someone says, you know, if you look at other teams, you know, they have coaches that deliver more offense, I immediately think you do not watch other teams. No. <laughs> right? So, like, <laughs> sorry, I, I, I watch, and I don't mean to say it in the way that, like, oh, anyone who possibly watches hockey can't have that opinion. Maybe there is, but, like, I watch a lot of hockey. I, mm. I, I watch, you know, probably at least one game a night. Mm-hmm. And all, like every time I see another team, I'm like, wow, yeah, their offense isn't very good. Eh? Even even <laughs> when the offense is fine, like it's just the, the Leafs have a high standard with that, right? Like the the only teams that I think consistently have a better offense in terms of um, expected goals and shots than the uh, I think Carolina is basically the only one over the last few years. Mm-hmm. And the Leafs Tampa obviously have counts sh- on its shooting. Yeah, yeah, and the so. Leafs obviously have shooters that Carolina wishes they had. Mm-hmm. But, like, you look at other teams, and they just don't generate the level of offense that the Leafs do. And, again, it's very hard to separate coaching from talent. So you can say, you know, well, that's that's the players, right? The players are so offensively gifted that they'd be even better with a coach besides Babcock. But then, logically, you have to extend the same thing to the defense, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so the Leafs' defensive results, are we saying that's the cause of the players, too? Like you, in order to paint Babcock as this all-defense-no-offense coach you have to accept that at least players are primarily in charge of their offense but are not at all culpable for their defense are not culpable to the same degree for for mm-hmm. defense and i don't know maybe that's a valid argument i don't know you could argue that defense is more coachable than offense which is kind of more ingenuity yeah maybe um but i think you know you have to establish that a bit more before treating it essentially as a fact and I, I mean I do legitimately think that defense is a talent the same way the same way we're not like 
why can't Kasperi Kapanen just view the ice like Mitch Marner? Why can't that be taught? There's there's yeah. such a thing as like defensive vision too and awareness, right? And being able to recognize the patterns that are breaking down in front of you, mm-hmm. or that right? I'm not convinced that it's so easily taught. I'm not convinced that defense is an all effort thing the way we tend to think of it as, and the way it's often yeah. described as, right? And this is a thing in the NBA as well, where people tend to define defense as, you know, an all perspiration thing, and. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's more effort-dependent than offense. You can get to maybe a passable level if you just try hard. But I definitely think there's a component of defensive talent there. Amari Stoudemire famously tried very hard on defense. He was just bad at it. He just couldn't recognize things fast enough. This is honestly my belief with Cody Ceci. I don't think it's that he's not trying. I think that his processing speed in his own zone and maybe in general is that too slow. I said this in a comment a while back, but, like, if you made hockey into, like, a turn-based game, Cody Ceci would immediately become a pretty good defenseman, is my theory. If you just gave him time to think, but that's the NHL, is you have very little time to think. And your ability to read the play, to figure out, you know, is this guy drifting behind me? Am I losing body position on this guy? All that sort of thing. Um, Some of that is effort. Some of that is fighting for real estate. Some of that is doing shoulder checks when, you know, the time comes. But some of it is also, you just got to think at a rate that is really, really high and observe a lot of moving parts in less than a second. And so I do think that people are maybe too confident in saying these things are the coach's fault. These things are the players doing. The reality is that it's a lot more fun to blame the coach than the players because we're invested in the players. The players are by and large not going anywhere. The coach can be fired like that if you have the desire to do so. And the players, by and large, were kind of stuck with. Um, except for, you know, whatever one individual is being run out of town by that given segment of the fan base. So, the coaching change is an easy one, frankly. Um, it's maybe a reflection of how high Mike Babcock's reputation was. That... It was the first two years where he was kind of sacrosanct, and we're really getting this discussion now for the first time. Not the first time. I'm saying it's reached a new height of intensity now. (laughs) But most coaches are always kind of a little bit on the hot seat. There's always a certain amount of pressure um, to win and do better, and that seems to me what's going on. The biggest thing you have to remember in all of this stuff is that the Leafs team save percentage has been garbage, and people don't like that. They don't like mentioning it. They don't like blaming our backup goalie for some reason. Although he's, I don't know what to tell you. He hasn't been very good. No, but it's also, I mean, it's hard to blame him for any of the goals. And I know that's not how goaltending works, right? Like Mm -hmm. good goalies save goals that wouldn't be bad goals. Yes. Right? Like there's a difference between like a goalie who just lets in bad goals or sorry, just only, um, or saves all the bad goals, but doesn't save the high-end chances, that's not a very good goalie. Yeah, you have to overachieve at some point, even as a backup, yeah. just every once in a while. And by and large, he doesn't. Mm-hmm. And I grant, like, the Leafs are a tough team to play behind in that regard because they give up chances. They give up too many chances. It's a problem. You know, we've just been talking about that. But at the same time, it's like, you can expect more from Frederick Anderson than we've had a lot of nights so far this year as our starter. And... 
while Michael Hutchinson has been far from the sole problem on that end, emphasis, far from, uh, it's going to be really tough to survive sub-900 goaltending on an extended basis. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. All these things that people are using to criticize Babcock, um, I, I think some of the arguments are just really bizarre, right? And we see this more and more, I think, as fans get more and more on board with firing they get mm-hmm. to like the bitch eating crackers level where it's like look at that fucking bitch over there just eating crackers like she owns the place <laughs> right it's like you just find fault in everything innocuous that they do right and i think the, the thing is is that like when something goes wrong mm-hmm. if you've already accepted premise of babcock is a bad coach and thing didn't go our way it's really easy to just make argument after argument where you're just like oh Babcock screwed that shit up again. You, you know, like, you never bother to prove anything anymore. And so, yeah, bitch-eating crackers is a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you, you see this now a lot with, like, oh, he's lost the room. I mean, maybe he has. I'm not saying... It's certainly happened before that coaches lose rooms. It'll happen again. Um, but I, I don't see a way of really ascertaining that from the outside with any, like, real degree of confidence. Right, I, no, you'll see a lot of people where they're sort of like, well, you can tell from the body language on the bench that they've just quit on Babcock. No, you can't. Sorry. I, I would like to do like a, a double blind thing where like I, I just take two screen caps of the bench. One from <laughs> like, I don't know, a year and a half ago, but like make sure the players aren't don't make it identifiable. And <laughs> one from like yesterday and just see like, does this make a difference? Can you tell? My guess is you wouldn't be able to. And again, that's not that's not to dismiss the idea that Maybe that teams can't quit on coaches. They absolutely can. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it's not incredibly obvious to me that they have yet. Right? Um, and then, yeah, the the Babcock doesn't like a skilled offense thing is bizarre to me. Um, that I mean, one's nonsense. That's, that's the easiest one to just throw away. It's frankly. also, like, not <laughs> valid when you look at his lineup decisions. Like, play, coaches lie in the media. Coaches don't lie mm-hmm. when it comes to who they put out on the ice. Yeah. And that's for point. the last few years, the Leafs' most played forward was, uh, in all situations, it's, it's Mitch Marner, who mm-hmm. I think is solid defensively, but is not certainly not amazing. He's not a stalwart there. Um, the Leafs' most played defender has been Jake Gardner. Yeah. That's the other thing is, you know, I feel like people forget the value that he saw and derived from a lot of these players. Players who we do have experience with under other coaches. You know, he trusted Jake Gardner. He helped turn Nazem Kadri into what he became, which was a remarkable second-line center um, who was able to play tough, tough competition and still score. Um, he got really extraordinary results out of Tyler Bozak and Jameson Dreamsdyke with very specific usage. And I think that that's often forgotten. And again, that doesn't mean that I think, okay, now he's he's ready to lead this team to the cup. He's flawless. Everything's perfect. But when the whole argument against him is just, this guy is basically a extremely fortunate, outdated moron who was blessed with two of the best rosters in the history of the world in Team Canada and the peak Detroit Red Wings, which, and that part is true. But you say, like, this guy doesn't really know what he's doing. Um, I find that weird. I find that strange and kind of overstated, and it clouds whether there's a really legitimate argument 
to move on from Mike Babcock, which again, you know, as we've said, I don't think that there's nothing there. I don't think that any coach is job for life territory. And I don't think that you can totally divorce uh, who gets to be the coach from how the team is doing. You know, ultimately you do have to perform um, over some extended time span, but you know, we are seeing some stuff right now where it's just bananas. It's very hard to understand. Yeah, it it just kind of it's lazy. It's a lazy argument, right? At the end of the day, that that's what it is. It's a it's a lazy argument to kind of make that claim about to make that claim about Babcock. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, for one thing, like his teams in Detroit were also known for being kind of skilled, you know, skilled teams, right? I mean, Pavel mm-hmm. Datsuk, Henrik Zetterberg, and Nick Lidstrom were their three best players. Yeah. Right? It, it, it's... That's the one thing I, I don't understand. I mean, I've looked at it... I, I looked at this again, I think, in the 17-18 season, right? Because that was the year where the Leafs had this ridiculously hot start. Mm-hmm. Right? They were blowing teams out in terms of... And scoring, like, six goals a game over the first two weeks of the season or something like that. And then Babcock had the... Uh, oh, this offense. Yeah, it's fun, but it's dumb comment and then mm-hmm. everyone ran with that to be like oh see he's going to turn the Leafs into a uh, a grinded out team and when the Leafs offense in terms of goals predictably became something that was not six goals per game everyone's like see look at this I remember looking at that um, and basically I think this was a huge this is an example of how the order in which things occur vastly like, like shape our narratives of it even if there might not be any underlying change in like the process, right? So if you if you plotted the Leafs' uh, shot rates for and against, and you like smoothed it out for for that year, um, at the start of the season, the Leafs were out shooting teams like mad, and then they never really replicated that again um, for an extended period of time. And people were like, see, mm-hmm. he's trying to turn them into a grinded out team, and it doesn't work for them. Now the problem with that argument is it wasn't their offense. That got worse. It was their defense that got worse. Mm-hmm. The Leafs' offense can re- often hit the highs of the first two weeks of 17-18. Right? At, at least three or four times by by shot rate, it hit, you know, an extended, like, six, seven-game stretch where they generated shots as well as they did at the start of that season. The defense never did. No. Right? And the thing is, like, the ordering of that meant that people saw... At, you know, that first two weeks of the Leafs as the default. And then any change must have been done because of something. As opposed to, hey, the Leafs played really well for two weeks and it happened to come at the start of the season. Right? Like you could, if you... and, and also, you know, the, the start of the season is a bit of, uh, I don't want to go all the way to say funhouse, but like it's a bit of a chaotic time. Like the league has not settled. Teams are not as maybe uh, practiced in the way that they're trying to play as they later become. And there are also a lot more penalties called. But, you know, there's every reason to suspect, hey, this is probably not what we should use as a resting state for how good the team is. Yeah. I, and it got to the point where, like, you know, we had two weeks of those crazy results where the Leafs were amazing offensively and good defensively. And then, you know, five months of the Leafs' regular results, which is the Leafs were amazing offensively and bad defensively. And people mm-hmm. were arguing that, like, the two week is, like, the Leafs' default. And it's like that... That's not really how it works. If you have a two-week outside stretch, that's not what you always 
can reasonably expect it to be. But we see this also with players, right? Where it's like someone will have an, uh, a 10 points in 10 game streak. And they're like, man, if he could always just be that, that'd be amazing. It's like, <laughs> well, yeah, if he could always just be himself at, when he's at his best and luckiest, we'd all be amazing, yeah. right? So we the would, order in yeah. which things occur vastly kind of change the narratives on it, even if the underlying process hasn't shifted. And that's not to say the underlying shift didn't process with certainty. It's just that there was no real evidence that it had. Right, like the, the the results that the Leafs got for the rest of that year, at least offensively, were pretty similar to the results that they got in the, the, the first half or the first uh, few weeks where they were, you know, crazy hot. Right, it's just it's just you you can't. Yet yeah, I think people need to, I guess, make arguments that are just not awful. <laughs> that was the yeah. I mean, I briefly taught logic, believe it or not, and. Post hoc ergo propter hoc is what they call that one. It's like after the thing because of the thing, mm-hmm. basically. And that's the most common thing is that we'll fish around for some sort of cause and effect here where this is just kind of a crazy-ass game. Yeah. And, and again, you're like, you know, I don't want to say that all of the case against Mike Babcock or the things that people are saying are all bad. It's just we're seeing a lot of noise and heat and frustration, which is just our team lost to teams that we'd really love to beat. Uh, Boston and Montreal especially. Believe me, I feel it in my heart too. And I want to break something, almost. It's like that cartoon about, like, I want things to be different. And then they just, you know, torch the room with a baseball bat. And they're like, oh no, you know, now things are different. I think that that's the impulse there. And so that's what I'm saying. Yeah, and, and nothing we're saying is meant to, you know, ha- bring, or is meant to kind of refute the point that, like, it's possible that Babcock has made changes about the Leafs that has resulted in, in different play, but it's never really been established that he's done that. No one no one has been like, look at this tactical change, look at this before and after that is not just like, you know, incredibly convenient. Right? Yeah, like, well, I mean, the one thing that I'm noticing is less stretch passing, which is something that everyone was screaming at him to do for about a year. Yes. So. And, and again, actually, another thing it's reasonable to criticize Babcock for is he changes his priors very slowly, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, Leo Komarov was, I could tell you a month and a half into the 17-18 year, it's like, okay, this is going to be a problem. Komarov is not good anymore. It took Babcock till the sixth month of the year to, you know, make have that change reflected in his time on ice. Same mm-hmm. with Marlowe yeah, last year. He had a very long, slow sink yes. down the lineup that, like, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, so it's so. like, okay, that is a reasonable thing to criticize him for. Right, absolutely. Like that is a fair thing to criticize him for. That's something I would criticize him for as well. Um, so, like, there, there there are real things to point out about Babcock that he's by no means perfect. He might. I don't even think he is, you know, like a super elite coach or anything like that. I think I think he's fine. Right. I don't I don't think he's elevating the team drastically. I don't think he is, you know, an anchor that we're tied to. I think he's he's most have been tell. okay. Yeah. And the thing is, I also have huge error bars on like what I think of him as a coach because I think it's just so hard to evaluate coaching in general. And there's so much we don't know, right? Like we, from our perspective, we don't know what his relationship is with the the players on the team, and that stuff does matter. If he has actually lost the team, then yeah, that's a huge problem. But we don't know that. Yeah, and you know there are inherent issues. I think in trying to make players do what you want, where it's like Austin Matthews knows in his heart, probably 
that he is more essential to this franchise than Mike Babcock. Does that affect his willingness to play defense? Does that affect what he listens to? I have no idea. Maybe he's just out there every day and doing exactly what he's coached to do. Maybe he's not. I think that, you, you know, people have ascribed a lot of these things directly to the coach because, again, it's more pleasant to think of it being the coach's problem than the player's problem because if the player is flawed, he's still going to be here and he's, you know, still a dominant goal scorer and that's great. But that makes it less fixable, seemingly. You know, coaches do have a natural life expectancy and... To be honest, it's often less than five years. Now, granted, Babcock has an enormous contract, but, like, maybe there is a natural process of you don't have anything new left to say after a certain time period. You know, you can't give that team much of a jolt. If this team were to fire Mike Babcock tomorrow, which they're not going to do, I'm fairly confident, <laughs> um, I suspect that the Leafs would have better results in the next upcoming stretch because they should have better results anyway. Their save percentage should regress upward. John Tavares and Hyman and Dermott are going to get healthy. So, you know, it is very tough to evaluate there um, whether you're screening out coaching results or what have you. Um, and I know Sheldon Keefe is kind of the Boadiel of the fan base right now. Like, everybody's just all crazy about him because the Marlies have had some some great success down there and he appears to be the Kyle Dubas choice given that Dubas has hired him twice in different roles I don't you know he's not going to be a magic bullet is the only thing if you really are convinced in your heart that he's going to be better than Mike Babcock that's fine and legitimate but I don't know that we have much I mean we have zero NHL track record about him but he's going to have flaws like any other coach so I would say probably keep that in mind. Yeah, and I I don't I don't know enough about Keith to um really make any strong claims about about him. Um, I guess the other option if we fired him is to promote Dave Haxtell. Um, if that happens, we'll bring mm. Annie on the podcast and she can talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it didn't work well for Philly. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I feel bad. Yeah, I don't know if Annie's going to want to talk about Dave Haxtell anymore because I believe she has alluded to it was a long and unpleasant stretch of her life where she had to talk about Dave Haxtell in the past. Yeah. But, yeah, anyway. Um, so, yeah, so, it's it's not obvious there's a huge um, upgrade. Now, here's the thing. If the Leafs fired Babcock and hired, say, Bruce Boudreaux, mm-hmm. that would be really fascinating to me. Yeah, which... Um, I, you know, I've thought for a long time that Bruce Boudreaux was a good coach. Mm-hmm. It would be kind of hilarious to if, they, if people were like, oh, we can't get out of the first round and have success in Game 7s. You know who we should hire is Bruce Boudreaux. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but I think he's a terrific coach. And oh, I think yeah. he's coached teams to be successful in more than one way. Yes. Like, Minnesota has been the best defensive team, but I remember when the Caps were the best offensive team. He's played different rosters. And I think he's mostly been unlucky. Um if you want to attribute his failure to win playoff series to his failure to make adjustments to the situation, maybe I'd love to see that proven at some length and it's very hard to do, but you know, I'm not saying that you, I can't conceive of coaches that I think might outperform Babcock. The, the other one that comes to mind is obviously Barry Trotz. Although you wonder if Trotz is maybe a fit for this roster. Trotz seems like the ideal guy to get a 
a very middling roster to play terrific defense. Mm -hmm. You know, like he'll max their defensive results as best he can. Um, I don't know how that would work out in Toronto, but I think he's a good coach. But after that, it's like there are always going to be trade-offs, and some of this is change to make a change territory. Maybe there is eventually some point where you do just have to do that, where you think this team is stagnating and I have to change the thinking in the room. Yeah. But again, that's the kind of argument that's very tough to prove or disprove unless you're in the, on the inside. So. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think that's probably enough on on Babcock. Um, before we head out, mm-hmm. we actually someone requested that we discuss this, um, and that's the mm-hmm. Marner Matthews pairing, kind of, and why it hasn't worked the way we would expect to. So Ian Tullock actually wrote about this yesterday as well, and at the Athletic, it was a solid piece. I'd recommend reading it. Um, but yeah, Fulman, to you, like, what what do you think is the the major cause of that group not or that pairing? perhaps not working as well as we would naively expect. Right. So I think the biggest thing is that William Nylander is a much better match for Austin Matthews than is maybe generally understood. He's, among other things, he's a terrific transition player. I'm not saying that Marner isn't good at that. And in comparing Nylander and Marner, most things that one is good at, the other is at least not bad at, I think. But I think Nylander is extremely good at gaining the zone. And that's maybe his greatest uh, his greatest asset, is that he's able to get that line where it needs to be going, and then to facilitate Austin Matthews getting to a high-danger area. I think Mitch Marner is more, if you give him a certain amount of space and some time to process the ice, he can pass it to basically anyone anywhere. And he can sort of survey things. That's one of the reasons he's so great on the power play, uh, notwithstanding that the power play this year has been a little iffier. But I think that his skills don't mesh quite as well as Nylander's do with Matthews because Nylander is specifically doing the things that Matthews is maybe not quite as good at. That is my best theory. Uh, I thought Ian's piece was quite good in terms of laying out not so much center and wing responsibilities, which is maybe how we are accustomed to thinking about it, but F1, F2, and F3 responsibilities, which is which forward is first into the zone, and which is second, and which is third, and their responsibilities based on that. And one of his points is Zach Hyman is an ideal F1 because he goes in there like a runaway freight train and scraps for the puck, and he's very good at that. So it, the piece also ended up being kind of a, a secondary endorsement of players like Hyman or Mikhaev on these kind of lines, which is also partly why I like it. Zach Hyman forever. But I thought that that was very insightful in terms of Mitch Marner being kind of an ideal F2. If you give him space to kind of monitor things and look for passes, he's really good at that. And when he's with Matthews, he has less time doing that. That's pretty much what I think. So I, I agree with Ian a lot on there. What do you think? Yeah, so, I mean, I th- first off, there, there's a couple kind of interesting things to look at. For one, if you look at Matthews and Marner's stats together uh, over the last two years, the numbers are actually probably better than you think. Mm-hmm. Right, you as in the general you, because uh, I, I told you this already. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not hugely surprised, but yes, it's good. Yes, um, they actually have, over the last two years, and 200 minutes played, so from actually 17-18 to this year, um, so that's two plus seasons. They have an expected goals percentage of 54%. Now, their currency percentage is, is notably worse. Um, and we know that 
these things themselves are random, right? Like we, we treat Corsi as a process, but it's not, or something indicative of the process, but it's also itself random. So, you, you know, in small samples, you don't want to read uh, too heavily into it. But even even this year, um, and if and last year, like the results from that line are surprisingly decent. Now, I actually looked into this. The reason for that is a lot of their time that's spent together is spent together on changes, on long changes, effectively, where, um, for example, the Taveras line is out. Hyman and Tavares change. Marner doesn't change yet. Matthew comes over the board with at least in the offensive zone, and they, they generate some shots that way. And then when the puck goes the other way, Marner changes. Now, there's nothing like nefarious about that. That happens, you know, all the time, and I don't think there's a particular pattern to it. But it happens to be that when those two play together, that's often the situation that arises. Now, the reason we're talking about this in particular now is because for the first time in a while, the Matthews-Marner... Um, pairing has kind of played together intentionally, you know, as as line mates, um, and it's something that people have kind of clamored for for a while, and there the mm-hmm. result seemed kind of more disappointing. Now, part of it is also because of the competition they face. Most, a lot, actually, I think about half their minutes this year came against the Patrice Bergeron line. That that'll that'll do a number on anyone, and doesn't make anyone look good especially, you know, two guys who are offensively gifted because the Bergeron line makes you play a lot in your own zone. Yeah, but very much so. But that being said, um, I guess my thoughts on this are as follows. Um, for one, I think if they played together for longer, we would eventually see them succeed. I think they're mm-hmm. too talented players to not really succeed. Maybe it won't be as good as we would expect, but I would expect them to be an above average duo um as you said i think matthews benefits very heavily from the transition play of nylander um nylander again and not to say marner's not good at this because he, he is but nylander is one of the best in the world at transitioning the puck and we're getting to a, a fairly notable sample size now of nylander's lines just kind of kicking ass at Corsi in a way mm-hmm. that marner's hasn't necessarily um, the other thing is that I don't really understand the point of playing Marner and Matthews together because we've had it, we haven't established now that okay Tavares Marner that's a really good combination and Nylander Matthews okay that's a very good combination what's the upside to Matthews Nylander right Matthews Mar- or sorry Nylander Matthews right now they're operating at like fifty eight percent Corsi and like sixty percent expected goals it's really high level stuff. Is Marner... Yeah, they're destroying out yeah, there. Yeah, is, is Marner Matthews likely to exceed that? Probably not, just because there's more room to go down than to go up. It's something I say all the time, right? <laughs> there's like, kind of like a plexiglass principle. And similarly, is Nylander mm-hmm. Tavares going to be better than Marner Tavares? Probably not. Right? It could be, but if it is, it's probably not going to be by much at all. So so what's the advantage to doing this? Like, they, they, they don't, yeah, they don't I, need each other. That's another yeah. way of looking at it. The instinct appears to be just sometimes we want to see, like, cool shit, basically. Yeah. Like, and they think, okay, our best two offensive players are Matthews and Marner. And that is maybe a little debatable, but okay. And I just want to see them play together. And I think in people's minds, they just envision, like, goal after terrific goal. And, you know, we're just blasting other teams off the face of the earth with raw power. And I think that's intuitively appealing. 
except that numbers wise that's what Nylander and Matthews already have been doing mm-hmm. to the extent that it can be done so it's a bit yeah I, I think the, the big takeaway there is as you said there's not that much room to go up and so you might as well stick with the two pairings that we know generally work quite well and you, you know it maybe it was the time to try it with Tavares out I guess but notwithstanding it was against the Bergeron line so you have to discount the numbers somewhat I haven't seen anything that makes me eager to go back to that well. I also think that there is maybe as an underrated component in this that Matthews and Marner seem to want to play together. They're friends off the ice. Um, I think they have a lot of fun uh, with the idea of playing together, and that's great. And maybe it was uh, kind of a intelligent political move by Mike Babcock in terms of room management to say, okay, I'll give you guys a bit of run if you want to do it. Um, if you want to get really cynical, you may notice that he gave them a little bit of run right into the Bergeron line, and they got killed, so that might be uh, kind of a coincidence, but it's like, hey, you want to play together and be the big line? Here you go. This is what that's like. But I haven't seen anything there that makes me eager to go back to that really ever again. I think Matthews and Nylander should be welded to each other for the duration of their contracts, as far as I'm concerned. And ditto Marner and Tavares, so... Yeah, might as well just staple them together at this point. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that kind of covers it. Like, I think it, I wouldn't bury that pairing of of Marner and Matthews, right? If if Nylander gets injured or, God forbid, traded, um, you know, we'll probably have to explore it at some point. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, the latter case doesn't come to be. And actually, you know, it's it's becoming kind of at least to me, I, I feel that Nylander is, now, is quite clearly now on the best contract of the three of Marner, Matthews, and him. I don't think it's actually that close. Yeah. The only thing is that people are going to say, well, you know, people go on and on about what his point points? production and stuff like that. His point production will be good, but yeah, yeah. But I mean, he's been a phenomenal player this year, and it's kind of, it's underappreciated as Nylander always is, except by a very specific part of my Twitter, which is wildly devoted to them and for this I salute them they're right <laughs> but uh yeah it's just I don't, I don't know how you can be unhappy with that contract at this point in time yeah okay cool um so I think that just about covers everything we wanted to um to go through today was there anything else you wanted to discuss uh no I think that's about all I got sweet um, so you can catch all of mine and Fuleman's work at pensionpanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.